In the name of God, the one holy and undivided Trinity. Amen. Amen. Often when I lead evening prayer, I use a collect that draws from the imagery of the gospel we just heard. It goes like this. Lord Jesus, stay with us, for evening is at hand and the day is past. Be our companion in the way. Kindle our hearts and awaken hope that we may know you as you are revealed in scripture and the breaking of bread. Grant this for the sake of your love. Amen. I love both this prayer and the story. They're so richly textured and they suggest something essential about the shape of our lives as Christians. So let us look more closely at what's going on on the road to Emmaus. It's Easter afternoon and two disciples are hastening away from Jerusalem towards a town about seven miles away. Actually, scholars can't agree on where it was or even if it was. So it must have been small and insignificant. Maybe they live there, but we don't know anything about them either. One is called Cleopas, perhaps the same person as Clopas in John's passion narrative. The other is not named, but some scholars think she might be the wife of Cleopas. In any case, they are any and every disciple. As they walk, they're talking energetically. The word in Greek expresses pondering and questioning and disputing. That very morning, they heard the message of women who found the tomb of Jesus empty, but they have no idea what to make of that. They seem overwhelmed with grief and despair. In the days just past, they witnessed Jesus' arrest, torture, and death, and with them the collapse of their hopes for liberation and new life. Maybe, as scholar Ched Myers suggests, they are getting the hell out of Dodge, fleeing for their lives, lest they should meet the same fate as their leader. As they go, Jesus himself comes near. He comes near. The phrase is the same as when he told them earlier that the kingdom of God had come near to them. So this is a proximity full of meaning, full of possibility and grace. He continues on the way with them, but they don't recognize him. So why not? Why not? The simplest answer is just that it's a mystery. The text says their eyes were kept from recognizing him, as if it's not yet time and God is working something out. Myers proposes that Jesus bears the mark of his recent suffering in such a way that he is unrecognizable. Many, though not all, of the resurrection accounts suggests that the risen body of Jesus is both continuous with how it was before and radically changed, so that only when an encounter goes deeper in some profoundly personal way can recognition dawn. Here it seems that the sorrow and trauma 
and yes, despair that these disciples have suffered keep them from being able to even imagine that Jesus might be there with them again. They cannot see what, for completely understandable reasons, they are sure cannot be. The irony and suspense in the story grow because we hearers know that the stranger is Jesus, but Cleopas and his companions do not. Moreover, Jesus asks them in such a seemingly innocent way what they're talking about with such energy. Are you the only person in Jerusalem who doesn't know what happened? Cleopas cries. I wonder, is he angry, suspicious, or just really sad? The whole center of his world has been undone. But many neither know or care what happened. He tells this stranger about the brutal, bitter downfall and death of their beloved teacher, saying very poignantly, we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped, but no more. It's worth pausing for a moment at that place of lost hope. Sometimes it takes time, in fact, a lot of time, to grieve for what we imagined could be. And we cannot see any new possibilities at all from that place. And sometimes grace is walking beside us in our sorrow, even though we don't recognize it yet. All we can do is be faithful to the next step and the next one before us. Jesus chides them, though I imagine with some gentleness, how foolish you are and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things? Beginning with Moses and the Exodus, he takes them through all the stories of Israel's faith, interpreting and reinterpreting and making new connections with their personal experiences and reframing what they've just been through. He shows how his own story, although he doesn't say it's his story, stands in the prophetic tradition of challenging injustice and idolatry and empire, stands in the long call to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with God. Maybe when Jesus says the Messiah's suffering is necessary, he's speaking about God's determination to be present through every horror that humans inflict on each other. God's choosing to bear them all in order to reveal a love that is stronger than death and that makes a way out of no way. When they come to Emmaus, it's getting dark. The two disciples urge the stranger strongly to stay with them for the night. When the collect invokes this moment in evening prayer, it has such a tender longing quality. Lord Jesus, stay with us. We want your comforting presence as evening is falling and then through the vulnerable hours of the night. But in the gospel story, it seems more like a gesture of hospitality. The Cleopases are intrigued with what they have heard from this unexpected traveling companion, and they're eager to continue the conversation. 
But they also know that the road grows much more dangerous at night, and they want to provide shelter and sustenance for this lone traveler. In her weekly musing, our bishop, Mary Glasspool, says that this moment is the pivot point in the story. I think she may be right. When the disciples welcome this unknown stranger, when they open their home and their hearts, a deeper encounter and recognition and revelation become possible. Part of the charm of this text is the way openness grows gradually between Cleopas and his partner and the stranger on the road. The grieving disciples, despite their sadness, become willing to question and listen and wonder and discuss, even if their vision is limited and their hearts are initially slow. Many of us may identify with this process. Still unrecognized, Jesus accepts their hospitality and goes in to stay with them. And then in one of those gospel reversals, at the table, the guest becomes the host. The stranger takes the bread and blesses and breaks it and gives it to them. And they know quite suddenly that it's Jesus and that he's entirely alive. So what made them recognize him? Luke says their eyes were opened, but how and why? Has his teaching stretched their imaginations and warmed their sluggish hearts to make them more flexible and open? Has welcoming a stranger kindled their ability to see something new? I think so. And also, Jesus has, as scholar Luke Barreto says, just done the most Jesus thing of all. He shares food with them in a way that breaks down barriers among people and breaks down the barriers in their hearts. How many times had they been at table with him? Had they seen him take the bread just like that and bless it and break it and give it to them? How had that caring provision over time formed and changed them? We and they remember a meal of bread and fish seeming so little, so inadequate for a hungry crowd in a deserted place, but offered from the people themselves in mutual aid and multiplied in a miracle of generosity to feed a multitude. We may remember meals at the homes of friends like Mary and Martha of Bethany, or unlikely hosts like Simon the Pharisee or the very rich tax collector Zacchaeus. How Jesus would eat with anybody, anybody, especially those who were suspect or unwelcome elsewhere. And of course, these actions, taking and blessing, breaking and giving, are the very ones the teacher did only a few nights ago in a supper full of tenderness and intense anxiety before all hell broke loose. As he shared bread and wine with them that last time, he said words they found incomprehensible then. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. Whenever you do this, remember me. Remember me. 
Bring me again into your presence and you will see me. Luke emphasizes that the last was a Passover meal, the feast of freedom from bondage, pilgrimage food for an exodus journey, sustenance in the wilderness in which God provides enough and will bring the people through. So these disciples recognize Jesus in this act of love with all its intertwining meanings and layers. It's not fixed, but dynamic. The risen one is known not in the bread exactly, but in the breaking and blessing and giving. The meal creates community and all are welcome at God's table in their vulnerability and imperfection and beauty. The community itself reveals the presence of the risen Christ. Of course, this is the dynamic shape of our Eucharistic worship. Week in and week out, gathering in familiar and unlikely ways, opening the old stories in unexpected ways to show how the sacred is present here and now, and then taking bread to bless and break and share, being nourished and being changed. Eucharist means thanksgiving. The choreography of our worship is meant to shape our lives as we encounter strangers in our journeys, as we try to grow in our ability to welcome, to choose hospitable curiosity instead of fear, to make meaning informed by all the connections of the sacred and the personal. We are both broken and gifted and we are invited to bring all that we are to God in community. In all our meals and all our meetings, we may learn to trust in one who nourishes us, walks with us, and raises the dead to life. In hard times and joyful times, we give thanks with bread, blessed, broken, and shared, in the company of Christ, crucified and risen, who calls us deeper and deeper into life. Such gratitude, grounded as it is in faith in God's persistent goodness and love, is profoundly countercultural. Writer Solveig Nyken Gooden comments that the practice of thank, break, share is the opposite of what much of the world around us lives by, which she summarizes as grasp, hoard, consume. She says the Eucharist is a secret code of the followers of Jesus, an empire-defying resurrection power hidden in plain sight. No sooner has this resurrection power revealed itself than Jesus disappears from the table at Emmaus. Fed and abundantly enlivened, the two disciples rush back to Jerusalem to tell the others what happened on the road and how they met Jesus in the breaking of the bread. The story goes on from our reading, for suddenly he is there again in the midst of his terrified friends. They're wondering if he's a ghost, but Jesus shows them his wounds and says, do you have anything to eat? Or as Myers paraphrases it, can a brother get a sandwich? The scarred, hungry, resurrected body of Jesus shows us that our bodies too all bodies 
both human and other than human, all beloved creatures are precious to God. The Easter message, like the message of the Incarnation, is that God is present in flesh, not just for a season, but always. Resurrection is not about escaping from life on earth, but about living in the power of God's love for the world. This is where Christ will be found, in the flesh and bones of our lives, both broken and blessed. Here are powerful implications for valuing all kinds of bodies, young and old, black, brown or white, all genders, all kinds of different abilities. Here is urging to tell our stories in ways that honor the sacred and recognize it all around us. Resurrection calls us to see beyond our fear of those who seem strange or different, to glimpse our kinship and the presence of the divine. This is surely a matter of life and death for us, my friends. As anyone who has seen the precious pictures of 16-year-old Ralph Jarl, who was shot because he knocked on the wrong door and thankfully is recovering, anyone who has seen his pictures knows how crucial it is to learn to see the divine and our kinship with one another. Together we are Christ's body. We are called to nourish and care for the world, and we need each other, all of us, to experience the fullness of Easter joy. In the very final section of the story, Jesus tells the disciples, you are witnesses of these things. And he sends them out to show and share a resurrection life, a Eucharistic life. And so it is with us. We're sent from every service, from this table, nourished, hopefully, by stories and sacrament, blessed and broken open to witness to the unstinting welcome and unbounding love of our God. So in gratitude, may our hearts be kindled, our hope awakened, and our witness fruitful. May we know God's companionship and presence in the breaking of the bread and all throughout our lives. For love's sake. Amen. <clears throat>